this working okay? There we go. Okay. Um, just a, a little update on Wayne. Actually, his, um, he still is battling with C. diff and the fevers, and so the next day or two are uh, pretty important. Um, so if you could really be lifting him up in prayer that some of the measures that they're taking to address uh, that infection um, would really have an effect. So um, we just really need to be lifting up our brother and also our sister Alice and, and the kids as well through this time. And Alice's parents are here as well, um, praying for them and for Wayne's parents also. Okay, um, so we've been in the book of Luke, and as I mentioned a few different times over the last, I don't know how long it's been, that we've been in Luke, but mentioned that we would take a few planned breaks here and there along the way. And so here we are at another one of those breaks. So for the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at a little mini-series entitled Resting and Running. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, because there's just so much in there. We're going to take it in two pieces. And then we're going to look at Hebrews 4 and 12. Um, so some of the purposes for the series, I won't mention everything at this point, but um, I think we need to learn how to rest in Christ, rest in the gospel. We also need to learn that that kind of resting is not at odds with the appropriate kind of running. So there is a kind of running that calls the grace of the gospel into question. And we need to be wary of that and guard against that kind of self-effort, okay, where we're trying to save ourselves. And there's also a ditch on the other side where when we talk about the freeness of grace, we can actually make it sound like effort is an enemy and running is at odds with the freeness of the gospel. And that's not the case. And actually, there's a tension, I think, here that we wrestle with all the time in our lives as far as what does that look like? What does it look like to trust the Lord, wait on the Lord, hope in the Lord, rest in the Lord, and that not become an unhealthy passivity? And what does it look like to strive and to run the race without that becoming an unhealthy take matters into your own hands sort of thing? Okay, so we're going to wrestle with some of those tensions. Um, so I think also, at any time in any of our lives, this can happen, but um, some of us might be weary. And so the question is, why? This is a broken world, so oftentimes we're going to be weary, we're going to struggle. But sometimes our, our weariness is self-imposed. And so we need to ask the question of why. So some of those issues are present in the purposes um, for the series. Um, how did grace and effort fit together? Do you need to rest because you've been running maybe in the wrong way in your own strength? Or do you need to run and maybe you're sitting too much passively? So I think there's a word here for all of us um, so this passage, we're going to take two weeks on, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. I think it's on page 969 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. It's such a powerful passage. I found myself going back to it and meditating on it um, a lot 
on and off for the last several years. And what's really interesting is that we know it's really sweet. We know it's really powerful, if you're familiar with this text. But also, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of hard to know exactly how to apply this. Okay, so ready? Just listen to the text. If you're turned there, um, Matthew 11. Let me read it here for us. But I want you to see that there's a lot here. We know that. It's sweet. This is encouraging. But also, there are some places where I'm not sure if it's very evident what exactly we're supposed to do. <laughs> okay? So, Jesus says, Matthew 28 to 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what does that mean? What does it mean to come to him? How do you do that? What, I mean, maybe we know <laughs> weary and heavy laden. Okay, that's maybe pretty transparent. But what about taking his yoke upon you? What does that mean? Do you know how to obey that right now? Okay. Take his yoke upon you. Could you explain that? You know, if you had to teach the third graders? Well, here, let me explain what that means. What does that mean practically? Because this is something we ought to do today. We ought to do this tomorrow. Do we know what we're supposed to do? What's this yoke? What's the burden that is his that's easy and light? So a lot of questions, but there is a ton of grace in this passage. So let's pray and ask God to give us uh, insight and grace and help to hear the voice of our shepherd this morning so that we can follow him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church, this group of people, this gathering of people that you have assembled. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've poured out in our lives. Thank you that you have so graciously, mercifully been patient with us. Thank you for your love toward us in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for new hearts. We thank you for hope and peace. We thank you for all the very great and precious promises that are ours in Christ if we are in Christ. And we are in need of so much more. And we thank you that you are not stingy with your grace, but you are lavish with your grace. You are an overflowing fountain of grace and mercy, and your mercies are new. Every morning, you're a self-replenishing supply, and there is fresh grace to be had for today and for tomorrow. So Lord, help us to come to those waters this morning and drink deeply. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we would be able to rejoice and be glad in you. Where we are weary and heavy laden, I pray that you would lift 
those burdens. No one comes to you unless the Father draws him. And so would you draw us by your effectually gracious power so that we, when we hear your voice saying, come to me, we just come. Even in the sense that we don't have to figure out what it, what it all means, we just do it. Because you are drawing and you are working and you are speaking to us. So Lord, help us to engage with you this morning. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft and responsive. Help us to see the ways in which we've, we've brought unrest and weariness and burdens upon ourselves. And we need to lay them down and throw them off and run to the rest. And where some of those burdens have been placed upon us circumstantially or by other people, Lord, again, you are able to take those burdens. We can cast our cares on you this morning because you care for us. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So help us to wait on you and hope in you and exchange our weakness for your strength. Give your strength this morning. And for those who've never come, maybe they've come to church, maybe they've gone through some motions, but they've never come to Jesus. Lord, would you draw them this morning and give them for the first time ears to hear Jesus say to them individually, come to me and give them a heart to respond and find rest for the first time ever. True soul-level rest in Jesus. So relying on your Spirit's power, trusting in the living and active nature of your Word, and only in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ do we pray these things. Amen. Well, we live in a culture that doesn't seem to experience much genuine rest. We're a society that's falling asleep when we want to stay awake or when we need to stay awake. And we're staying awake when we want to fall asleep. Americans will pay Starbucks billions of dollars this year in order to stay awake. Red Bull and all of these energy drink um, companies, they're bullish even in bear markets. From mid-2010 to mid-2011, energy drink sales hit $6.9 billion. And yet we also, on the other end, will pay a few billion dollars for sleeping pills this year. About 42 million sleeping pills, sleeping pill prescriptions were filled in 2005. That was up 60% from 2000. And 60 million prescriptions fulfilled in 2010. So the most recent statistics I could find. 
And yet, they don't always work that well. Certainly, they may have their place, but there's also plenty of studies and articles and so forth. They have their side effects. They have their dangers. Sometimes they don't seem to have a significant effect. There was an article in the New York Times this past March entitled, New Worries About Sleeping Pills. Oh, great. (laughs) I thought I was taking this to avoid that to get over some of those things. So the article opens, talk about sleepless nights. Patients taking prescription sleep aids on a regular basis were nearly five times as likely as non-users to die over a period of two and a half years, according to a recent study. Even those prescribed fewer than 20 pills a year were at risk. The researchers found heavy users also were more likely to develop cancer. Now, obviously, I'm not making a comment on whether or not that's good research or not. There were people that criticized it. There were people that supported it. Okay, that's not the point. It goes on and says, so what does the insomniac to do? Nothing rash. New York Times advice here. Quitting sleeping pills abruptly can result in serious withdrawal symptoms and agitation. Ironic effect, not to mention sleepless nights. If you quit cold turkey, patients must taper off the medication over many weeks, experts say. So we're a restless generation, but the issues... The whys go deeper than a need for caffeine or a good night's rest. Why? Why all this restlessness in our lives? And certainly we see it all around us. But it's not just out there. It's in here. Why is that? Sometimes the source or sources kind of tend to elude um, identification. Sometimes we don't want to stop and think about why we are so agitated so much in a place where we don't experience peace and rest and calm. What are the sources? What are the solutions? Maybe it's because we don't want to face some of the sources that we feel helpless to find or follow through on a solution. Just consider a few sources of restlessness and their relationship with our restlessness. Sometimes loneliness causes this relational restlessness um, because, caused by a, a, a lack or a loss, okay? So something that you wish you had or something that you used to have, okay? That can create some restlessness. Guilt, our conscience, lots of restlessness as a result of not living up to what we know is true and right. Sometimes, because of that, we try to put our fingers in our ears, spiritually speaking, and we mute the voice of our conscience And we're usually pretty unsuccessful at that. So we live restlessly in the uncomfortable light of the sin and shame that we may just want to avoid and run away from. Sometimes if we feel like life is meaningless or insignificant, we're restless. Sometimes we just busy ourselves with little small things because we're so bothered by the fact Ironically, that our lives are so small. Sometimes boredom. Sometimes there's this just this inability to be still, to be quiet with your own thoughts, quiet before God again, because there's something wrong. There's not peace there. Hopelessness, relational conflict, fear. So enough with the sources. What about solutions? Should we just keep filling our lives with endless background noise so that we don't have to face that discordant music, the off-key stuff, the minor key stuff that plays in our souls. Just wake up in the morning, turn on the TV, get in the car, turn on the radio, you know, put on the earbuds all the time, anytime in between anything, anything but silence, silence with your restless self. 
Should we run to food and drink and porn and video games and TV and movies and Facebook and mindless internet, surfing and shopping and various and sundry other diversions in order to escape or ignore or drown out or medicate or avoid our restlessness? Should we maybe buy those the things that advertising is selling us, the lies of advertising that promise that peace and satisfaction, tranquility of soul are just right around that next consumer bend. All you have to do is turn right here. Sometimes we immerse ourselves in our work, busying ourselves so that despite the emptiness, the failure, the disappointment we feel, we can at least maybe find some shred of quantifiable worth to justify our existence. Sometimes we cultivate relational codependence to try to get at this restlessness and salve it. Sometimes we try to salve our consciences by nervously or obsessively serving in different ways, whether in the community or in the church, busying ourselves ever so sacrificially in order to drown out the nagging sense that we've not lived up to our own standards. So we've got to kind of do a makeup call here, and we've got to make sure we do enough so that God is, is not disappointed with us. The Bible has a ton to say about unrest, and it has a ton to say about rest and peace. And there are a fair share of promises that God makes about giving his people rest. And he gets down to the root of the causes of our unrest, um, but gives us hope and promises that God will give his people rest. So um, before we look at Matthew 11 in particular, we need to get a sense of the kind of hope and expectations that were brewing when Jesus spoke these words. Okay, this is not just kind of obligatory background. You kind of check out and wait till it gets practical later. <laughs> this is really important because you won't understand what Jesus is saying if you don't know what's underneath it. And what's underneath it for them is also underneath it for us because they were people just like we were people. We, we are people, yes. Um, so for Israel, they had two main categories of rest. They're not completely separate categories. There's some common ground overlap, but we'll look at them separately before we put them together. The first, for what it's worth, the outline is not going to be particularly helpful this morning, so you can just use it for notes. Okay. Um, So the first, this actually is on the outline, but I'm not going to follow the outline the whole way. So the first category, the first thing that would be in their minds when you talked about rest would be Sabbath rest, right? Obviously, it goes all the way back to creation. God himself kept the first, first Sabbath on the seventh day after completing his work of creation. He didn't do it because he was tired. Okay? Instead, as a friend of mine who used to teach at Wheaton um, pointed out, God's rest on the seventh day was in action what he said in words when he said that it's good, 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 very good. Okay, so God stepped back, as it were, and said with his words, good, 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 very good, and with his action, I'm ceasing from work because my provision for my people is complete. It's perfect. It's sufficient. It's good. So God's rest was due to the fact that his provision was complete, 
And obviously there's an implied commitment to continue to work for his people, continue to provide for them. Adam and Eve were supposed to keep the Sabbath by trusting in his goodness and his sufficiency, the sufficiency of the provision that he gave them. So God rested after his, comp- after his creation was complete, and then he put Adam to rest in the Garden of Eden. Listen, listen to this. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him. Literally, that verb is put him to rest. It's the same language of the Sabbath later on. So the Lord God took the man, put him to rest in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. He put him to rest to work. So this is a restful work that he's doing. This is happy farming, no futility, okay, prior to the fall. So the original Sabbath was not because God was tired. And to keep the Sabbath doesn't mean that you were, you know, sure to get a nap in the hammock on Saturday. It's way more significant than that, although naps in the hammock on Saturday or Sunday or whenever day is a good thing, okay? Not, not saying that's a bad thing. So to keep the Sabbath was a personal and a public and a social expression of faith. It was the faith expression that with God as your shepherd, as your king, you would not want. You would have all that you needed. He would protect you and provide for you. Again, a friend that taught at Wheaton, Scott Hafeman, he talks about how the Sabbath was like a string tied around Israel's little finger to remind them and jog their memory week after week that God would be their sufficiency and supply, that he could be trusted because he would be faithful to provide for them. One of the reasons for this weekly reminder was because their memory, even of God's greatest miracles, was so short-lived, just like ours. So he says this in his book, The God of Promise and the Life of Faith. For Israel, each week was to be a reenactment of the week of creation. God's people were to work for six days, running the world and being nourished from it. Right? They're supposed to rule. They're supposed to work and extend that rule, subdue the whole earth. Okay? So they were supposed to do that. God's people to work for six days, running the world and being nourished from it, just as God worked for six days to provide it. By doing so, they take dominion over God's creation as he commanded them. Then after six days of enjoying God's, creation, God's provision, a day of rest was to be enjoyed as an echo of God's declaration that his creation is good, his provision perfect. It's like saying amen to what God has said. Okay? He goes on, thus by keeping the Sabbath, God's people were to proclaim about creation what God himself said about it when he rested. God's provision is all they need to fulfill his calling in their lives. Like God, his people were not to rest on the Sabbath because they were exhausted or needed a break. Although we get exhausted and we need a break. But because they were content in God and his will. So if you turn that around, you can begin to see what it meant to break the Sabbath. It was to call the goodness and sufficiency of God's provision into question and doubt his word, doubt his ability to take care of you and provide for you. It was to fail to trust God. So he's given all this gracious provision, and you say insufficient, your future promises of provision, unreliable, insufficient, and then you take matters into your own hands. This kind of helps us see what was going on, what is actually happening when you listen to the Israelites grumble in the wilderness and when we grumble. 
Grumbling or complaining is a faith issue, okay? It's a Sabbath-breaking issue. It's a Sabbath-breaking issue in our hearts that breaks out in our speech. Okay, perfect example, man in the wilderness. They're brought out of slavery into the wilderness. They grumble. They wish they were back in Egypt. The point is, in the wilderness, God can't do it. He can't, he can't provide for us here. We don't trust him. Okay, so God said, I'm going to just rain bread down on you from heaven. And I'm going to do it to provide for you. I'm going to do it to test you. Both purposes. They were to collect a day's worth, right? Each day. They had to trust him to provide their daily bread. If they didn't trust him, I'm going to get a little extra just in case it doesn't show up tomorrow morning. What happens with that extra? It breeds worms and it stinks, right? So oftentimes they didn't listen. That's what happened. So on the sixth day, on the sixth day, they were to gather two days worth. Trust me. It's It's going to be preserved. Here's why. Exodus 16. Moses said to them, this is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that's left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. Every other day you're not supposed to do that. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded and, did, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. but they found none. They were taking matters into their own hands. They're not trusting God. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Can you you hear God saying, when are you going to trust me? I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you a break from your gathering work. Okay, the Sabbath is for you. It's not for me. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a gift. Why won't you trust me and receive this gift? Let me work for you. But it's a gift and it's a test. So unbelief causes a good gift given for the sake of rest to be a cause of unrest. Okay? There's a lot of other Sabbath material we could trace out, but the second category. So when you hear, if, you're, if you are one of the people in the crowd, one of the Jews in the crowd, Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. These people, when they heard rest, they thought Sabbath rest, and they thought another category, rest from enemies. Okay? Think about it. First, Egypt. Could, could the Israelites keep the Sabbath in, in Egypt? No. They weren't in their own land. They're under the thumb of a foreign king who had no regard for Yahweh or his law, and there was no rest. They were slaves. They're under the yoke of Pharaoh, and he's driving them. And so they are weary and heavy laden. Listen to the way God speaks of the Exodus. Leviticus 26, 13. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So they just got rest from their enemies. They were freed. One of the curses of the covenant, if you fail to keep it, was actually God predicted this. Deuteronomy 28. You can look at this later. 
He says, if you trust me and you obey, this is going to be the blessing. If you don't trust me and you disobey, this is going to be the curse. And part of that curse is unrest. So rather than rest on every side, if you trust him, instead you'll be under the yoke of a cruel, harsh, foreign master and you will have no Sabbath. So this is the way the language goes in Deuteronomy 28. You can read the whole chapter later. Um, It's a long chapter, but it's a very important chapter. He says, basically, because you didn't serve the Lord with gladness because of the abundance of all the things I provided for you, therefore you're going to serve your enemies and you're going to lack everything. And then he says this, and among these nations you shall find no respite, no rest. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. He warns them ahead of time. So we know how the story goes, right? They did this over and over again, distrusted, disobeyed, and that's exactly what happened. Fast forward all the way to Jerusalem being raised um, to the ground by the Babylonians in 587, and then Jeremiah with lamentations, just weeping because of all that's happened, because of the idolatry of the people, how they haven't trusted God. And here's the language of lamentations. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Lamentations 5.5, with a yoke on our necks, we are hard driven. We are weary. We are given no rest. So Israel throughout her history knows this unrest. She's longed for Sabbath rest, longed for rest from enemies. They knew it in Egypt. They knew it only temporarily in Canaan under Joshua, only temporarily under David, only temporarily under Solomon. And each time they lost it because of sin. So if you read Second Samuel, First Chronicles, you see that under David, the Lord given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Solomon, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. But they lost it again because of the sin. So they've got these longings for rest, these hopes and expectations because they're supposed to be this, this one that comes in the line of David 2 Samuel 7, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And that's the Davidic dynasty. So someone down the road is going to actually bring and give you this rest. Okay, so that's all the background. Okay, so Sabbath rest, rest from enemies. That's the background swirling in their heads. That might seem far away from all of us. But we share the exact same sources of unrest as they. And we have similar hopes and longings for rest like they did. And we share the same solution. Rest and unrest are not Jewish issues, not Old Testament issues. They're primal human issues. Okay? They actually stem from the garden where the first Sabbath was set up when everything was good, good, good. And God gave this perfect provision, this lavish, abundant provision. Every plant, every tree, every tree, except the one because I don't want you to die. 
And then an enemy came in and called the completeness, the goodness of that provision into question. Did God really say? So the Sabbath rest was sabotaged and attacked by an enemy, by the serpent. So there are sources of unrest within and without our unbelief and enemies and threats outside. So Israel or not, Israelite or not, you and I, we were made for true rest. We've fallen away from it. We have longings to return to it. And we look naturally in all the wrong places for it. But God is gracious and he calls us back to himself in order to find true rest. Augustine said in his confessions, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So that's the background. (laughs) Sorry, really long introduction. Not really just introduction. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm humble, gentle, and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're going to actually look at 29 and 30 next week, primarily. We're going to look primarily at verse 28 this morning. So Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. It's intentionally broad, intentionally inclusive. Okay, Weariness and heavy ladenness can be something that you bring on yourself or something that's brought on you by an outside force or a combination of the two, which is pretty much the case for all of us. And so this is a call for all of us to recognize our neediness. It's a call for all those who aren't too proud to acknowledge their need. If you look at the immediate context, Jesus says, I I thank you, Father, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to infants. The people that were supposed to give rest were the religious leaders. They were supposed to lead like under shepherds, God's people, but instead they were tying heavy burdens on them. You've actually hidden these things from them, and it's the infants, the ignorant, the people on the margins, the weak that are actually understanding because God reveals it to them. So the prostitutes and the tax collectors are, are in going into the kingdom ahead of the Pharisees. because they're not willing to admit that they are weary and heavy laden. They need delivered. So this is very much in line with a few chapters earlier in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or the, the hymn that we sung, and Russell mentioned that section right at the end that's so sweet. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So that's what Jesus is saying to those people and to us. He promises to give us rest, which is, and I will give you rest, which again, if you know the Old Testament, it's just 
boom, whoa, 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 whoa. Is he claiming what I think he's claiming? What Greg read. Do you remember at the end of that section? My presence will go up with you and I will give you rest. That's where that promise is is given. So rest comes from having Yahweh's presence with you and being at peace with him. So it shouldn't surprise us that in Matthew one twenty three we hear that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I am God in the flesh. I am God with you. And if you come to me, I will give you rest. Now, step back a little bit. We've seen Israel's problems and their unrest, their expectations for rest. And I want to make sure that we connect those dots to our own hearts and our own lives. I was pondering um, the passage yesterday. Um, I still need to get that like dry erase or something erase board in the shower because it seems like this always happens in the shower. Okay? Um, But here's what struck me. As I've said before, the the Sabbath rest, the longing, the desire for Sabbath rest, rest for many, it's not uniquely Jewish. It's fundamentally human, those longings for rest and for rest from enemies, enemies within, enemies without, okay? What causes our unrest? Go back to the two aspects. Sabbath rest, rest from enemies. What are the opposites of those two? Sabbath rest is trust, right? So breaking the Sabbath, the opposite of that is unbelief. It's doubt. Sabbath is a faith issue. We talked about that. Breaking the Sabbath is an unbelief issue. So what's going on when you and I doubt the provision, the promises, the goodness of God? What's going on? What is going on when you and I don't trust him to provide the happy future that we long for, whether that's two minutes from now or 20 years from now or 2,000 years from now? What's going on? Here's what I think is going on. I think what's going on is that you and I believe the lie that there's no one for us. We feel that way, don't we? Oftentimes. Think about a day this past week or this past month where you've been really down and you thought, nothing's going right. Everything's wrong. And it just seems like nobody's for you. Okay? Second aspect of rest, rest from enemies. What's the opposite? Being under threat or being under oppression from an enemy. What's going on when you feel like you're under threat or under oppression from an enemy? What's going on when your happy future is constantly threatened by enemies, enemies to your peace, enemies to your security, enemies to your rest? What's going on? I think what's going on is that you believe that everyone or everything is against you. Things like death and disease and sickness and financial ruin and job insecurity and relational conflict and all the people that are involved in that stuff happening. Not enough for me, too much against me equals unrest. Anybody resonate with any of that? Okay. Now, before we get to the solution, stop and take note of the pattern in the way that God deals with us. He does this intentionally, just like he did it in the wilderness. We'll talk about that in a second. In the garden, 
Everything was so lavishly provided, it was a perfect provision, but there was lack built in. Intentional lack built in. Do not touch this tree. And, I'm sorry, but God let the serpent in. He didn't have to let the thread in. He let the thread in, into the sacred space. Fast forward, Israelites in the wilderness. No food. He led them into the wilderness where there's no food. Lack. Very little water. Lack. Canaan. There's giants in there. Are you kidding me? Enemies. Those are enemies. Those are threats. You could go on and multiply examples. Go ahead and just, this afternoon, think through the Old Testament. He does this intentionally to test and to purify our faith. He does this to show that he's trustworthy and strong. That's why he rained down the manna. That's why he gave them Joshua to lead them into the land. So we should actually expect weariness and burdens in this life because guess what they do? They put us in ready position to trust in Jesus, to run to the only rest for our souls. If we did find rest in all these earthly created things, we would not be in ready position to run to Jesus when he says, come to me all your weary. I'm not weary. No need. So it is a blessing to have lack and to have weariness and to have heavy burdened lives at times because it puts us in ready position to come to Jesus and feel his strength and his ability to provide for us when we feel like we're empty, to rescue us when we feel like we are at the mercy of our enemies and the threats. But if you buy the lies and you give way to fear, what happens? What happens in those cases? Adam and Eve, what did they do? They doubted, they ran from God, and they experienced pain and unrest. The Israelites, they doubted and rebelled against God, and they didn't enter his rest. You know how he talks about the promised land as his rest? I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. The promised land. So it's intentional and it's dangerous. It's a test. It's a dangerous place to be where you're thinking and feeling, no one is for me. Everyone, everything is against me. Or mostly, no one is for me. And mostly, everyone or everything is against me. If you are there, you are restless. You are not at peace. You're weary and heavy laden. And if you don't believe that God is for you, you will have to handle things on your own. You're going to take matters into your own hands. In fact, if you are in this place right now, you might be pretty angry with God for not being for you enough on your terms. So you might make sure that at least you are for you. And you try to salve your self-pity and your sense of entitlement with personal pampering and purchasing and whatever other means... Well, if God's not going to meet my needs, at least I can. Now, you might not say it that boldly, but sometimes we do that, and we end up with more restlessness, more weariness. 
If you believe that everyone, on the other hand, and everything is against you, you're either putting up walls. What's the effect of that? You put up the walls, you get aloof, you get stoic, you get self-sufficient. I can handle these threats. Or you'll wallow in self-pity and you'll feel like a victim. You might, if you learn from the history of Israel, they did this all the time, you might make an idolatrous alliance with some functional threat deliverer. Okay, they did it with Egypt. God might not deliver us from our enemies, so we've got to make an alliance with Egypt. And that never worked. It always came back to bite them. And it's the same thing with our functional threat deliverers. Well, if God won't take this threat away, then I'm going to cheat, lie, gamble, drink, eat, drown out the threats one way or another. We can just, we can kind of yoke ourselves to some threat deliverer. Could even be a good thing that we use in a bad way. And it never works. We continue to be restless and weary and heavy laden. But if you're weary and heavy laden this morning, you're in ready position. It's a good thing. <laughs> you are in ready position to run to Jesus, to come to Jesus. And Jesus says to you, to all of us, wherever we are, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me from gentle and humble in heart, and you will you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, as opposed to all those other yokes, all the other slavery, it's easy and my burden is light. He is the true Sabbath rest. Jesus is the true Sabbath rest. And he is the King of kings, the King of peace that is bigger and stronger than any and every threat to your peace. So he actually fulfills both needs. In himself. You see how the cross fulfills both of these. Sabbath rest, the rest from enemies. The Sabbath, he fulfills it by giving his life as ultimate provision. He gave his life for us. He is for us. If you want to know if God is for you, look to the cross. There's no greater expression of his forness toward us. And he also fulfills the desire and the need for rest from enemies. He is our ultimate protection. That's why Jesus says crazy things in the book of Luke, like some of them you will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Don't fear those that can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Fear me and you'll have no one left to fear. So he's saying, if you want the ultimate someone to be for you, Always, forever, if you want the ultimate protection against anyone and anything that can ever be against you, come to me, and I will give you rest. You'll find it here, in me, in the gospel, at the cross, ultimate provision for our greatest need, dealing with our sin and our broken relationship with the Father and ultimate protection. Nothing can separate us now from his love. So listen as we close to Romans 8, 31 to 39 and think, for me, who can be against me? 
Because in this text, just listen. You can follow along if you want. You might want to just close your eyes and listen. But it goes back and forth, back and forth. And this is blood-bought Sabbath rest grace, rest from enemies grace, and it's beautiful. So listen, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So he's for us. He will provide all that we need. He will provide for you. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, who can be against you? No ultimate threat. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who can be against you ultimately? If Jesus is your advocate, there is no one that can wag their finger at you in the court of heaven. Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's for us. He's going to provide for us and protect us. He's interceding for us. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who can be against us? Who can, who can do that? Nobody can do that. There's no enemy strong enough to do that. So let me give you some really strong enemies. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, any of those? No. None of those things can ultimately be against you. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Through him who loved us, we can overwhelmingly conquer. All the threats are turned. They're turned for our good. He's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There are ultimately no threats because he who loved us is for us. So Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who says to you and me this morning, listen to your gentle, sovereign shepherd say to your weary, heavy-laden soul, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing Come Ye Sinners one last time. Oh, thank you, Father, that Jesus stands ready to save, whether for the first time or for the 5,000th time. Those who've never come at all, he stands ready and able to save. And those of us who have come again and again and again because we continue to get weary and heavy laden again and again and again, he stands ready, full of pity, love, and power. So Lord, thank you that we can come with confidence and approach your throne of grace to receive the mercy and grace that we need 
pray that you would help us to come right now and always. In Jesus' name, amen.